Welcome to Science Fiction Double Feature. This week, we hang out in a closed and common orbit with Becky Chambers and talk about the social and ethical implications of computing and AI with Professor Blay Whitby. Common Orbit is the sequel to The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Well, a sequel of sorts. It takes place in the same universe, but we hang out with a different set of characters. The main character is named Sidra, an artificial intelligence who, at the end of the last book, found herself booted up into an illegal body kit. I asked Becky to describe the universe Sidra finds herself in. Sure, so this is a this is a super diverse universe you're talking about you know an interstellar community um consisting of of dozens of different species um so you have lots of different aliens um together in in a political alliance they're not all operating by the same rules you can think of it as a sort of intergalactic European Union of sorts, you know, where it's like everybody's got their own thing going on, but we've got these these general rules that that guide all of us um, and we're all living within that. So there's a lot of um, conflict and a lot of complicated things that happen there. Human beings are kind of the underdog. Um, we are not the most advanced. We are not the most populous. There are a lot of species you don't think we belong there. So we're we're still... Just trying to get a foothold and and find our niche um, within all of this. And then alongside organic sapients, you have artificial intelligence, which are legally viewed as tools, really. They're, they're, they're tools, they're property. Um, they're not considered to be people, even though they are fully cognizant and they emote and they they think and have feelings and, and relationships and whatnot. They, they still, under law, are not treated as equals to, um, you know, those who, those who don't live in computers. So that's, that's the, uh, the extremely condensed version of, of the galactic commons. So your new book focuses on Sidra, who is one of these AI. And as I kind of think of it, she's trying to find her way in the universe. Was there a particular reason why you wanted to make this book about an AI? For starters, um, her story was the one that, that, I felt most drawn to following the long way to a small angry planet. You know, the, a lot of people asked if I was going to to continue with the with the crew from that book, and I had just sort of I had said what I wanted to say about them, um, but her thread was one I wanted to pick up because I, I wanted to see where she would go. Um, in terms of telling it from her point of view, um, what you tend to get in stories about artificial intelligence is they're they're very much focused on what our relationship is. To artificial intelligence, you know, you usually have um, a human protagonist who is dealing with an emerging artificial intelligence who, for various reasons, is, is commonly female, not always, but very commonly, and 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 dealing with the, the, the repercussions of that. And there's usually this element of danger or, you know, uncharted territory and whatnot. But it, it is ultimately about us and, and how this changes our society rather than how the AI herself is affected by this. So I wanted to flip that around and, and, and give, give her some autonomy and be like, okay, what, what is this like for her? Not, not how is it for the people around her? How is this for her entering a world where, um, that, that really doesn't have 
a role for her. You know, in in the book, she's um, and this this gives nothing away, but the the, the setup is that you know she's been um, basically downloaded into a body which is, is entirely illegal and um, is is just trying to live under the radar. So um, both coming to terms with her her physicality and and trying to to fit herself into a society that that hasn't thought to make a place for her. Um, that was, uh, it, it was a story that, that I found compelling and, and one I wanted to explore. I really quite enjoyed the flipping of assumptions that AIs would want to be in a body, or that was the kind of natural feeling for them as Sidra in the books struggles with, with this quite a lot. Was that always the intention or is it the way that it, it just kind of came out? I was just fascinated with the kind of flipping of that idea. Yeah, no, that was, that was very intentional. Again, when when you're looking at stories with AI or with androids or anything, there's there's always this sense that getting a body is 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 what ascends them to personhood, right? There's this desire to, um, if they want to become more human, that they they have to take physical form. And I I feel like that's kind of um, it's kind of arrogant to assume that all intelligences the best thing you could be is is to be like us. You know, and I think that's an idea that that trips us up in a lot of different areas. You know, it trips us up in how we how we think of ourselves, how we relate to other species. And I'm talking about like real species here on the planet. You know, this idea that you have to be like us in order to 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 matter. Um, and so I I really wanted to dig into that. You know, is this something an AI would even want? Because as I as I pick it apart in the book, there's a lot of limitations that come with having a body and with one set of eyes and um, and so I just felt like that was that was an area that I hadn't really seen explored, and 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 just just wanted to see what that's like. What what happens when the AI doesn't like her body? You know, what happens when this is actually really uncomfortable for her? I think it's good to 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 challenge this idea that the way we think and the way we physically are is is the end all be all of of sentient existence. And just to to talk about your style of writing as well. I found both books like really hopeful <laughs> in the tone. <laughs> um, maybe it's just because I've read lots of like kind of either aggro sci-fi or just like <laughs> gun-toting, you know, save the universe sort of stuff. Is that intentional or is that just the way you write? I just enjoyed it. It was just a delight to read. Well, thank you. Um, that's 100% intentional. We need to feel hopeful about the future. And I say that not to say that my approach is is better than you know sort of the the, the grim darker you know oh, let's you know let's be cautious here approach because I think we need that you know we're living in in really uncertain times we have um, massive global issues that we're not sure how to tackle and and you know science and technology plays into all of that and so yeah I think I think it not only makes sense but is healthy for science fiction to reflect that to reflect those fears and to reflect our real world anxieties about, hey, we're not sure how this is going to work out. We're not sure where we're headed. I think that's important, but I think you have to counterbalance that. You know, if if the only way you're imagining the future is within a context of fear, well, it's not a really good way to help you move forward. It's not a good way to to promote progress, you know, but if you have that alongside, hey, here's a future that's that's hopeful, that we want to be part of, that looks like it's a pretty good place to be. And, and you know, it's got its challenges and it's got its dark stuff. But like overall, this this future looks better and this is a future that that looks um, beneficial and it's something we could we could work toward. You know, I, I think I think that's equally important. You know, I think 
without having features you can point your compass toward, you know, we're a little bit adrift. So that's, um, I'm, I'm obviously biased because <laughs> it's my work, but, um, but that's, that's what I'm aiming for when I write my stuff. What I also enjoyed was the gender balance. Sci-fi has historically and currently probably still has a problem uh, with gender balance. Is this something also that you consciously try to do? Yeah, hugely. Um, I'm when I, you know, I'm writing far future stuff, and so I, I, I'm, I'm writing about the future of humanity as, as as best I can. I mean, it's that's kind of a big topic to tackle, but I'm not interested in writing a future that only exists for one narrow sliver of what our planet is actually comprised of you know half of us are are women we have more than two genders and the majority of human beings are not white so i i understand um you know why so many of the you know if you're talking about you know um intergalactic societies on tv right how you know they they look pretty bland you know and that's because of things like um you know hollywood casting norms and whatnot but it doesn't it doesn't represent how we actually are how we actually look so if we're if if we want to talk honestly about a future in which the entirety of humanity has gone out into space it needs to be more than white men you know out there like the future is for all of us and so i think writing anything else would be disingenuous again, I'm kind of comparing to some of the other sci-fi I've read, is that the scale of the story is, I think, quite manageable in the sense that you, you can have books that end after, like, you know, saving the Galactic Empire, and then, oh, there's another, like, huge universe-altering ridiculous <laughs> thing coming up in the second book. And so the fact that it's, you know, has relatable characters and kind of a relatable scope, I guess, makes me... I just really kind of fall in love with the characters then. Do you intentionally keep it small? Do you like these kind of more stories about relationships rather than, you know, galactic peril? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can only blow up the galaxy so many times. And I I say that as someone who adores that kind of stuff. You know, I grew up on Star Trek and Star Wars and Farscape and all of it. Like, I love me some space battles. It's, I hesitate to say the problem with that, but the, the 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 thing you get with that is is there's this sense that space is only for heroes, right? And and that's that's a a viewpoint you can see in our real world as well. You know, only a a, a tiny fraction of humanity has actually been to space, um, and the people who have done so belong to to really elite groups. Back during the space race, you're talking about uh, test pilots, you know, the military elite. And then nowadays, we're looking for very different things in astronauts, but we're going for the intellectual elite. You know, when you when you look at the biographies of astronauts, or you know, I've had the the, the privilege of, of meeting a couple. Um, they're they just they're, you're just like that. That's a that's a better person than I am. <laughs> like that's you know, they're they're incredible. Um, you know, and now that we're sort of moving into this era where space tourism or like, you know, privatized spaceflight is, is going to be a thing. We're talking about the the um the economic elite, right? So space in both our stories and our reality is something that only belongs to a handful of us. It's not for the ordinary people. It's not somewhere, you know, you and me can just pick up and go. And I think it, it plays into this idea that, um, or just this sense that it's 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 something 
that that doesn't belong to us equally, which isn't true. I mean, the universe belongs to all of us equally. You know, it's for everybody. And so my approach is to um, construct uh, a galaxy like you would see in a space opera where you have, you know, or like you would see in your typical space opera, you know, where you've got these big political machinations going on. But for the most people going through that, and for my characters, that's all just background noise. They don't really know the ins and outs of what's going on. They're worried about what they're going to have for lunch that day. You know, they're worried about paying the bills and taking care of their families. And in doing that, I wanted to create a setting where where space was for everybody, where anybody picking up the book could be like, yeah, I see myself there. You know, you don't have to be a chosen one. You don't have to be some sort of military hero or political hero. You can just be, you know, someone with, you know, the, the, the space equivalent of, you know, a house, a kid and a dog. And, you know, it's, it's, it's there for you as well. So, so that's, that's where I'm coming from with that. I think it's, I think it's just a lot of fun to, to imagine what, what would it be like to live in that fantastical future if you are just an average Joe? Some of the characters like Pepper, for example, has dealt with like trauma, (laughs) quite a bit of trauma in her life. What was nice is that, you know, that impacted her actions in a way that made her irrational uh, and things like that as well. So no one has to be perfect uh, and people, you know, deal with their issues differently, uh, which, again, made the characters very relatable. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about if you're if you want to write something that is hopeful or optimistic, that doesn't mean you sugarcoat everything. You know, because if you do that, then it it rings hollow. It doesn't feel real. You know, if you want a story about hope to 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 actually be hopeful, you've got to have problems in there. You know, you've got to have things that don't work out. You've got to have people who who make mistakes and don't get along because otherwise it doesn't feel attainable. It doesn't feel relatable. You know, so I yeah, I I like to make my characters messy and I, I don't think it's antithetical to you know the the overall goal of let's write a story that makes you feel good if you have to go places that don't feel good you know pepper's story there's a lot of really not pleasant stuff in there you know but i think i i think um or at least i hope that's what in the end is a story that makes you feel good because you look you look at you know she's been through these struggles and sidra's been through this stuff and everybody's been through stuff you know, stuff with a capital S, but they, they get through it and they find ways to work together. And, and I don't know, I think, I think that, that for me is one of, one of the most important things in, in what I'm, what I'm trying to do with this stuff. And I just read, and I had no idea when I picked the first book, because clearly it was after it had been kickstarted, but your first book was kickstarted. How, how has the process been different for your second book, given that you are the publisher? I imagine easier in some ways, but I guess for those who, who kind of Kickstarter or self-publish, what's the transition like? Oh, it's, man, it, it's night and day. When you're self-publishing, I mean, by design, you're flying solo, right? You're, you're on your own and you, there's no one you can really ask. I mean, you can go on forums and talk to people and whatnot, but I mean, it really just is you putting your thing out there. Whereas having a publisher... There's all of a sudden just this army standing behind you and they're like, cool, we'll do this and this and this and that and the other. And all you got to do is just write the thing. And that's really nice. <laughs> you know, um, Like I think that and that's not to knock self-publishing. I think um, self-publishing is a, is a totally equally viable, equally respectable way to, to put a story out there. You know, they both have their pros and cons. Um, but there was a world of difference between you know, having the story that I was just kind of doing on my own. And granted, like, I'm 
you know, I was beholden to my, my Kickstarter backers, but it, you know, I really was setting my schedule and, you know, I'm going to do it this way. Um, whereas with a publisher, you know, you've got a deadline and you've got a contract and there's a lot of freedom within that. And a lot of, you know, I had obviously, you know, lots of creative leeway. Um, it was, it was my thing, but you know, that's a, that's a different kind of pressure. The long way to a small angry planet. I wrote over the course of almost 10 years, you know, the Kickstarter from Kickstarter from beginning to end was a year and a half, but like, you know, it was a story that I, I worked out on my own, you know, sort of tinkered with over time. Close and common orbit. I wrote in nine months, um, with a publishing team at my back. I mean, it's just, it was both creatively and logistically just an entirely different experience. And I, I also read that you're doing a third book. Yes, um, I am. I am in the in the throes of it right now. I can't say too much about it, um, but I can tell you it's the same setting. Um, I can tell you it it does a similar thing to Close and Common Orbit in that it's it's a branching off rather than a, a continuation. Um, and it takes place somewhere I have mentioned, but haven't visited yet. So that's, that's as much as I can say at this point. Very intriguing. Um, I've noticed with the, like the first book, you, you you kind of, um, delve into one of the alien species a bit more, uh, in the first book. I can't, I can't pronounce the alien species name. The Aluans, I think the second book. Oh, Aluans. Yes. The Aluans. Yes. Are we going to see a similar kind of delving into one of the other uh, species that live in the universe. Can you say that? Uh, I will I will say yes and that <laughs> and leave it there. Excellent. The the last question I had uh, cuz I'm I'm kind of interested in what people read. Are you reading anyone interesting right now? Do you have any like really great sci-fi recommendations? Ah, uh, those are the two separate questions. So, um I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. I, I obviously do read science fiction, but especially when I'm in the middle of a of a book of my own, I tend to not read as much science fiction while I'm working on it. I tend to, you know, dabble elsewhere. And nonfiction is what gives me my brain fuel. You know, I love science writing and and all the rest of it. I just finished a book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are by Franz DeWall, who is a, a um He's a primatologist and he writes really, really wonderful books about animal intelligence and just the the differences in how other species think and behave and our limitations in understanding that. And um, obviously that's that's something that's hugely relevant to my work. So that's um, just something I'm interested in as well. In terms of science fiction recommendations, Ursula K. Le Guin is one of my all-time, all-time favorites. So if you haven't read her Please do. She's a legend. I also uh, really enjoy Octavia Butler, um, Margaret Atwood. I think that's sort of the holy trinity there, actually. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Um, those are those are the three on my shelf that will that will never leave. So, the the gap between books is when I sort of devour everything that's come out recently, and and the rest of it, I'm just I'm just soaking up as much science as I can. I'm the opposite. I'm doing a PhD, so that's like my work work, and then. Oh. <laughs> Right. My fun is <laughs> science fiction. So my kind of science fiction pile goes up the more I procrastinate. Right. <laughs> I'll get there in the end. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. So we're going to turn from a hopeful future 
to the current messy and maybe not so nice universe, especially for our future artificial intelligences. Blay Whitby from the University of Sussex researches the technical, philosophical and moral questions raised by our use of AI. Our interview ranged far and wide, but hopefully this small bit makes you think about how far we have to go before we even have the possibility to meet someone like the heroine of a closed and common orbit. My first question for Blay was, what is sentience? The real honest answer, if you want the honest answer from the field, credible journalism is, we don't really know. In fact, I could say there's a bunch of AI scientists and philosophers who say essentially that the appearance of sentience is the same as sentience. And there's a bunch of philosophers and maybe the occasional AI scientist at the other extreme who say it's just not possible. So to make something genuinely conscious, it's one more expression they use, is beyond science. Science isn't the route to it. Now, I would have thought most people and me, and maybe you, say the truth is in, in somewhere between those extremes. Would it help if I ran through some examples? That's fine. Well, in the, in the case of uh, intimate companions, sex robots and robots loving you, which is an area that I published in a few years back, it's a long story, then some people would say, well, if Siri pretends to care about you enough and pretends to be upset when you're upset, or we can write code that gives caring behavior from Siri, then that's sufficient. I think that's a mistake. But then if you were to say, how do you know what it is to really care or to really feel? We can build robots and computers that exhibit pain behavior uh, and say, please don't do that, it hurts me, that you just have to write the code to do that. But is that the same as really feeling pain? We're probably not even asking the right question. The way I'm framing this question may not be correct. Both as engineering and as philosophy, it's immensely difficult to answer that question. I mean, if you want to think about it as a science fiction writer, I mean, suppose a human pretended all their lives to love somebody or to care about something, progress the, the glorious communist revolution or something, but it turned out they confessed on their deathbed, I was only pretending all my life. Actually, I hated it all. How much difference would that make? And I don't know that we're clear about that case even. I, I was thinking that in the back of my mind. It's like, how can you tell that someone's being genuine and then goes behind your back how would you distinguish that in like an artificial intelligence when we can't really even do it in humans yeah so the honest answer is we don't we don't really know about that and most if not all the commercial work in ai just goes on simulation so siri will you know work out what you like to hear and tell it to you why because that brings in more profits for apple it, it doesn't really matter that it's not genuine because what they're about is profit for their owners. People in a lab are much more interested in genuine altruism and so on. But again, simulation seems to be the way. Uh, I was at a workshop beginning about, about a year ago where we were tasked with 
coming up with some sort of architecture that would allow a robot to take uh, decisions that involved breaking the rule because clearly the rule was wrong in this case. And we weren't very, you know, effective at that. And, of course, hanging over us all the time is who would buy a robot or an AI program from me when I said, you know, but if it thinks your rule is wrong, it will break it. You'd regard that as a defect, not a sales point. If it was, you know, monitoring, one of the examples is a fairground ride, another is the administration of painkillers and so on, you would expect the robot to keep strictly to the rules. And Bertram Meller did some research, I think 2015 online, and found that most people expect a robot to keep much more strictly to the rules than they do humans. So they they have different moral expectations of machines, um, which I would say is absolutely unfair, um, because in situations where there's no right answer, then you mustn't think the machine has some sort of divinity and can come up with the right answer if you can't. That's a serious error that we're still making, really. And one of the places we're making that error, well, I'm going to finish a paper and argue very strongly one of the places where we're making that error is in autonomous vehicles, uh, where an old philosophical technique from Philip of Foot in 1967, if you're interested, uh, the, the so-called trolley problem. But that's resurfaced in autonomous vehicles. You know, who should, who should the autonomous vehicle kill? And, of course, the, the bottom line philosophically is there's no right answer to that. No one ever said there was a right answer to the trolley problem. And expecting the car to know a right answer when you don't is, is really quite unfair. We've had a, a few fender benders with uh, autonomous vehicles, I think, that were most of the press has said that it was the fault of the human driver. But would we come down to some poor programmer having to say, in the case of like something like a trolley problem, just go with what's most legal? Like, it, like have people thought about... I'm, assume, I'm assuming the people who are programming these vehicles are thinking about them. There's a number of dimensions to that. The first is computer programmers haven't typically been the most ethical of people. They're quite likely to say, ethics, what's ethics? How, do, how does that affect me, someone else's department? And, you know, I say that as someone with the scars of having taught ethics to computer scientists, well, for a lifetime, really. And they can get it, but whereas medical students, and I teach ethics to medical medical students too, whereas they don't get onto a course unless they know something about ethics. Uh, I'm not convinced that large US corporations who are involved in this are particularly interested in what the right thing to do is. Oh my God, that's slightly terrifying. I mean, I have some positive suggestions because I'm not against the technology. Wikipedia says I'm techno-positivist, whatever that means. Uh, I think driverless cars are a great idea and we should do it. However, there will be accidents. There, there will be significant number of accidents, and people will be killed by driverless cars. So what I would propose is uh, a no-blame pattern of investigation, as the aviation industry has worked for decades, and it's made aviation pretty safe, where the investigators have the right to unearth everything, and that would include looking at the code. 
that that would include going to Google and saying, stop wittering about commercial secrecy. Show us exactly what was in that vehicle and why it did what it did. We need to know every detail. We need to know who wrote it, who modified it, who checked it, all that. And, and I guess the bottom line of my argument is Goldman Sachs, is it? Who, who's the big New York firm of auditors? They estimate, they came up with a similar sort of estimate. I, I think they would reduce road deaths by 90%. So not perfectly safe, but much safer than humans. Humans are, you know, humans are terrible at driving. You know, they get tired, they get drunk, they, you know, whereas AI programs are merely stupid. Is the kind of sci-fi aspect of what we think and like what we culturally think about AI distracting us from potentially real dangers and real world scenarios right now? Hard to say. Science fiction has often made very, very good predictions. Predictions that would almost make you think someone could see into the future in all sorts of areas. And they've certainly raised a lot of the crucial questions about AI. Uh, I would say if there's any distraction, it's that when people conceptualize or fictionalize an AI, they make it very human because that is the way they tend to think about it. When I when I drive to the hospital to teach medical students this afternoon, the traffic lights are all controlled by AI. If I choose to ignore them, I can be jailed. So I can be jailed for disobeying the orders of an AI system. That's the sort of deal we've got. Uh, and that's before I talk about how much monitoring uh, another not very ethical US company will be doing about my location and the time I spend in various activities via the iPhone in my pocket, right? And if you don't think Google have power, just narrate back a couple of years, I'm giving a lecture and a student has got his laptop open at the back, says, Wikipedia says you're wrong about that. Always up for a debate. I said, yes, I know. I've altered it a couple of times, but someone's going to be in their bonnet. Trust me, what I'm telling you is the truth. To which he and a couple of other students said, well, it's not really the truth, is it? Because you should teach us what it says on Wikipedia, because that's what everyone will expect us to know. So you see how knowledge is created by these large institutions, not by me. And it's not going to be saying, well, I was there and it didn't actually happen like that. That's the students saying, well, no, that, you know, when we're asked, we need to know what's, what's on the web, not what actually happened. That's a bit ethically or morally or at least just very scary it is scary isn't it yeah that's what that's why i mentioned it to you and that's that's the power these things have um so what would worry me about any ai straight away is who is it working for and the other thing you need to hear is we've known we've known since the early days of ai that programmers put their prejudices into programs there's nothing neutral about the machine uh, when, I, when I say we've known it from the earliest days, I remember a project back in the 80s which was to train police cadets at a police college in Hendon in North London. And it, it was built as an expert system in the way people did in the 80s. They went and interviewed, beat serving police officers, uh, asked them what they would do in certain situations and just typed that into the system in the form of production rules, basically if-then rules. Uh, and 
I'm saying it's 80s, it's a very old-fashioned, uh, a lot of AI systems still use production rules. They're simple and effective and easy to maintain. But when the system was completed, it was so incredibly prejudiced and visibly prejudiced that it couldn't be used. And it's, it, it really had rules like if you see a black man in an expensive car, stop him and question him, uh, which is probably distillation of what was actually happening on the street. Around about the same time, my wife, who's an AI scientist, Sharon Wood, if you want to look her up, got uh, an invite to speak at the AI Spring Symposium at Stanford and said, oh, we'll, you know, I'll get some more money and we'll make a family holiday. Because she bought the tickets in her name on her credit card, when the boarding passes arrived, they it said she was male. So she inquired about this and said, will this be a problem getting on the aircraft? And they said, well, you see, it's because it says Dr. Wood on your credit card and the system can only handle doctors being male. Uh, and there's no way to put that right. We'll just have to write you a letter saying, let you off. And you think, well, what programmer thought, you know, if someone has the doctor ahead of their name, they must be male? And, you know, the answer is an average programmer. Because, because you know, this, this prejudice, misogyny is alive and well. But yeah, it takes a conscious kind of recognition from the people building the services that, you know, there are different people in the world. Well, yes. And these are just the examples of prejudice that we've noticed in programmers because over that period, you know, from the 80s to now, women have been, at least, you know, at least in some countries, quite vocal about, you know, saying... This is, this is blatant prejudice against me. But I wonder how much prejudice we just haven't noticed because there hasn't been the same political interest. Standing back, take a you know, real philosopher's view of it, what I always think is if humanity all died out from some terrible virus, and my biological colleagues tell me this is quite possible, and then some aliens completely unlike us subsequently found our robots or our computers, or intercepted one of, our, um, one of the pioneer spacecraft, right? They would undoubtedly be ours. They would reflect ours, right? They would be, you know, they would not be in some sense separate. They would, they would re- represent our values, our preoccupations. They're full of them, you know. So our computers literally are a reflection of ours. And some of them may not reflect the best of us. <laughs> Can I, can I go back to what I said about um, imitating emotion? Because I, I think there's a specific danger in that. And again, it was Schultz and Mallard did a wonderful experiment. In, in a way, in the AI world, we knew this, but they just confronted, they designed an experiment just to reveal it, where they used a robot, a now robot, if you know it, a commercially available Japanese robot, it's about half a meter tall but it has two arms and two legs and big eyes if you know the uncanny valley you'll know why manufacturers make their robots like that and they don't move too close to being human and what they did was they they took psychology undergraduates they said (laughs) you have to give some instructions to this robot and it will then follow them and here's a list of the six instructions that the robot has been program to understand you speak to it well what they had to do was to tell the robot to knock down a tower of blocks 
And what they didn't know, what was a surprise to them in the experiment, is that the robot would protest. It's just cam text. It's a commercially available little toy. It says to them, please don't make me knock down that tower. Took me hours to build it. Please don't make me knock it down. And, it, and eventually it would pretend to cry. Or a pose that would probably represent someone in deep sorrow where they're human. But you won't understand this. is just a machine. It's just a toy. It's been programmed to imitate it. You get the picture? About 98% of the subjects not only didn't insist that the robot knock down the tower, they'd try to reason with it. They'd try to have a conversation with it in spite of holding in their hand a piece of paper that said the only six commands that the robot was programmed to understand. Right Now, my personal view, hand-wavy view, but I can do this, I'm a philosopher, is the 2% are a, a very interesting subset of humans. They really didn't care because they really don't care about anyone else's feeling. We, we normally call them psychopaths. All the normal humans, the so-called normals, right, were very affected by this crying-type behavior, behaved in, a, in, a, in the way you would behave towards a human. Uh, and they were interviewed afterwards, you know, and they said, why did you not make the tower down? And they said the robot was crying. Nobody likes to see a robot cry, uh, which I guess is as good as an answer as any. But the way I see it is, you know, it's like when cats rub themselves against your leg and people say, oh, they see you as a big cat. No, they don't. They know quite well you're not a cat. It's just they only have cat behavior in their repertoire. You know, that, that is their behavioral repertoire. And it's important to recognize that humans only have human behavior in their repertoire. So when they see a robot fake emotion, they can't help but respond to it. I mean, I, Cynthia, Cynthia Brazil at MIT did a lot on this with the Kismet robot and so on. And it, it doesn't look like a human. It doesn't look like an animal. It, it looks like a robot with big floppy bits, you know. Um, but people can't help but respond as if it had human emotions because we are humans and we only have human behavior in our repertoire. And that gives a direct route into humans, which is really very dangerous and not controlled. Well, it was really interesting in, uh, in the book, the main kind of um, tension was that the AI, whose name was Sidra, was put into a body kit that looked exactly like a human. A normal AIs were in ships and factories and stuff like that, and it was illegal to make someone into put an AI into a body. And it made me wonder that if we actually got to the point where you know weren't on County Valley anymore, and they actually looked and acted like humans, would we have the right then to know if they were uh, artificial intelligence? Because you know that study shows you could be easily manipulated based on the fact that we can only be human when faced with kind of human emotion. Uh, I, I, would we have the right? Uh, I don't honestly know. I mean, they could say this is prejudice. Exactly. I thought it was, it's an interesting moral question. It is an interesting moral question. We need to sort our attitudes out about this uh, very quickly um, because online, you see, I'm confronted, I may be confronted with artificial intelligences. Certainly uh, when... Uh, programs ask me to just answer a question or they say is it all right if I put a cookie on your machine or could I have some of your personal data and I don't seem to have the right to say who are you going to give it to 
they've they've kind of got that one covered. We give it to who we think it's worth giving it to, and your you know your privacy is assured. Uh, but I I don't know. And and the, the other irony is I'm frequently asked to prove that I'm not a robot by <laughs> popping characters down. So I'm already particularly online in a, in a slightly uncomfortable position about this. I mean, I'm not asking I'm not asking you to prove that you're not a robot. We've, we're already heading towards this, and I and I think if they are the other side of the uncanny valley, and I haven't seen anything that is yet. I mean, in most of the human robots I've seen, I have a distinct feeling of repulsion. Not everybody does, and it varies. But the uncanny valley is very real for me. But um, I can tell you how people get round it when interested in sex with robots which which an awful lot of people are um and that worries me as well because i think there are there are good jobs for robots and i I would certainly praise the pioneer spacecraft and curiosity on mars and uh, was it Philae we dropped on a comet on a one-way trip i mean these are all good jobs for robots definitely but our intimate companion, I'm not sure if that is a good job for a robot. It makes me uneasy on a number of dimensions. As a culture, we're kind of obsessed with humanoid robots that look like us and act like us. And then, you know, there's usually some sort of dramatic tension involving how they're different. But actually, we're faced with a lot of these real issues now, but just in ways that we don't quite recognize as being the same. Well, we also need to face up to the fact that science fiction and AI is holding holding a mirror up to our ourselves, and some of what we're seeing is not all that pleasant. We have to we have to face the fact that humans are not very nice. In fact, I wrote a paper a few years back, which really seems to have disappeared without trace, called "Sometimes It's Hard to Be a Robot," which is on the ethics of abusing robots. I mean, maybe it hasn't disappeared without trace because I just re- I just reviewed a paper on robot rape that is well, whether or not you could rape a robot, basically. Which again, you know, there, there is a small body of literature on this. I guess coming with the the kind of uh, sex robots that that's like a moral question you then have to raise. Oh, no doubt about it. In in my humble opinion, because like all typical academics when given this paper i went straight to the index to see if i was in it and the paper of mine that hasn't disappeared without trace is called do you want a robot lover question mark and one of the well the question marks important because i think there are more questions than answers in this area And, and of course i think it starts off one of you'll get the joke the first sentence which was hard for me to get through MIT Press's copy editor. The first sentence is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young man, brackets or woman, in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a robotic companion. That's Jane Austen. It's, yeah, it's a kind of slight bending of the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and I meant it just the same way. People have decided that you want a robot companion. Uh, you haven't decided this. Certain commercial interests have decided this. And you might or you might not, but it's worth discussing the consequences. One of the things I say in there, the same as in Sometimes It's Hard to Be a Robot, which is the opening line from a Tammy Wynette song, but none of the reviewers spotted that little joke. One of the problems that hasn't been discussed is one of the reasons that people will buy 
sex robots is to do things to them that would be illegal or immoral or both. Were they to do them to humans? Do we care? I mean, hence me ending up with this paper on robot rape to act as the anonymous reviewer. Some people do care. Kathleen Richardson is against sex robots because she thinks it's a, an objectification and it will contribute further to the objectification of women. And I think there's, there's something in that. I'm just putting this as part of a general theme that I'm pushing, that if you're a robot, this is not going to be a great world to be in. Humans will, will do terrible things to robots. Anyway, I've taken up much, much longer of your time. Uh, thank you so much. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Thanks to Blay Whitby and Becky Chambers for their time. A Closed and Common Orbit is now out at all fine bookstores near you. I, for one, hope we get to see the positive and hopeful future for both us and any artificial intelligences that show up along the way. You can read more about Becky Chambers and Blay Whitby in the show notes, as well as some other links to concepts mentioned in the interviews. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today, so read wisely. And possibly, for our future artificial intelligences, read hopefully. Thanks for listening.